0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on the effort to cash in on cannabis. Stigma is down and arrests are up.
1: Different standards, different states. Until it's legalized federally, you can't the border.
0: The suburban backlash of marijuana decriminalization in Philadelphia.
1: New
2: Jersey is now number four in the nation as far as marijuana arrests. What it does inevitably
0: is give it a black eye. Efforts to raise awareness and exclusiveness as more work to cash in on the green rush. He's the chief legal officer for the city of Philadelphia, and he's a millennial.
3: One of the best legal jobs you could have, period.
0: A six-month check-in with a new city solicitor, his progressive strategy, and how it's already making a mark nationwide. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is cannabis, a.k.a. marijuana, Mary Jane, pot, whatever you want to call it. Now, while it's been decriminalized in places like Philly, where those in possession only get a civil fine, in recent weeks there have been multiple reports of double-digit percentage increases in the number of arrests. That's right. People are getting locked up for pot, in the Pennsylvania suburbs and in New Jersey. Now, the numbers show that black and brown people make up a disparate proportion of those arrests. Probably not surprised. At the same time, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, they're granting medical marijuana licenses. So, what are the rules of pot? How can you avoid arrest and reap? The benefit of this green rush. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Chris Goldstein, a marijuana activist and writer in Philadelphia. We also have Gary Lamano, a veteran defense attorney who has clients who have been arrested for marijuana possession. We also have Steve O. He's co owner of a licensed medical marijuana dispensary, Restore Integrative Wellness Center, with two locations in Pennsylvania. And finally, we have Sharon Perry Thomas. He's director of social impact at DACA. Welcome to Flashpoint, everybody.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Gary, I want to start with you. There have been this uptick in weed arrests that have been noted in, in recent media articles um, now that marijuana has been decriminalized in our region, in, in some cities and in some states. What do you hear from folks who seek your assistance as to how they could have got caught on a weed
1: charge? First of all, a lot of people are, are, have a misconception about where it's been legalized or decriminalized. Yeah, they think it's everywhere. I know in New Jersey, I practice in South Jersey. In New Jersey, people have been hearing it for since Governor Murphy took over back in January when he was first sworn in. We're going to legalize it. We're going to legalize it. And they're hearing, seeing articles constantly. People think it's been legalized. It still has not in New Jersey. So a lot of people are getting arrested there. People from Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area coming into New Jersey have marijuana with them. They smell it in the car. When the car stopped, boom, they're arrested. And they're on, well, I thought it was legal. It was only a little bit of pot. I hear it all the time. A little bit of pot.
2: And that's what's going up in New Jersey. I mean, you know, you're up at 32,000 arrests a year. New Jersey is now number four in the nation as Mm -hmm. far as marijuana arrests. I mean, the top arresting states are Texas, Louisiana, New York, and New Jersey. So we're talking about 89 people every single day, at least, who are running into police over a marijuana charge. And what they showed in the inquirer is that it's really going up in the suburbs. I mean, you're talking about Mount Laurel, Cherry Hill, places like this. and. You know, that's where, uh, again, an encounter with a police officer over a small amount of marijuana is going to have to introduce you to a guy like Gary and to have to pay him for criminal defense.
0: Yeah. And, and that sort of goes to. And but part of the the wave of this discussion of pot and everybody thinks it's 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 legal now is because you're literally having dispensaries opening up. But, you know, Steve, I mean, you guys are for medical purposes.
4: Correct. And I think it really behooves our industry to, to let the word out and make sure that we educate the patients and the public at large in regards to what this program entails and the boundaries of which you have to um, obey in order to participate in this program. Because what it does inevitably is give it a black eye. Of, and unfortunately, with these arrests and with, with people who believe that, that this medicine is actually for all, and for the entire public, really needs to understand that um, it's only for patients and those that qualify with uh, very specific diagnoses.
0: Yeah, and so then the disparities exist, Sharon. I mean, you have a
5: large number of people of color, they're they're getting arrested. Right, exactly. Um, Black and brown people are being arrested more than other populations. And so what we're doing at the Diasporic Alliance cannabis opportunities is that we're trying to bring more awareness to some of these issues and concerns as we speak to them, particularly around arrests and what exactly is legal. Because I get it. I can understand why everyone would think that it is legal. You go into the supermarket, you look at the magazine stand, what do you see? The National Geographic. What's on the, the cover of that National Geographic? It's a cannabis leaf. But there are laws, and we do have to make sure that people understand what those laws are. So, with our conference, we actually will have attorneys there who will be educating people about their rights. And we'll get back and we'll go
0: in a little bit more detail to your to your conference. But Gary, I want to talk about you. Things are changing, um, but the law also makes it a little bit easier for cops to even have suspicion to arrest you and investigate whether or not you have weed.
1: That's correct. A few years back, I'd say about, hmm, about four, maybe five years ago, he was another, a case came out from the Supreme Court in New Jersey, which made plain smell a probable cause issue. And we had that stop. pungent smell. Exactly. So the, the, the minor car stop, something as minor as an inspection sticker is past due, gets the car stopped. The officer smells either burnt or raw marijuana, or I believe he does. They're in the car now. Before, he had to bring out the dogs impound the car. You had to get a search warrant from, signed by a, a Superior Court judge to get into the car to find it. They don't have to do that anymore. That's the smell gets them in there. Once they're searching for the marijuana, it's open It's open game. Anything they find is theirs. And Weft even like and a little drugs, bit of weed? Like how much it weed? It doesn't take... If it's enough to collect, it's enough to charge. I mean, I've seen cases where they find flakes on the floor or they'll find a bug flakes. and the end of a joint. Just the small roach in an ashtray, and they'll come back. We'll get lab results back in the state, please, Point zero one grams. They tested it. <laughs> it was enough. It proved it was marijuana. That's all it takes.
2: Uh, I, I went to federal court over 0.4 grams of marijuana. I mean, you know, it, it really only takes just a little. But that, that's the important thing about Philadelphia yeah. and, the, and how that juxtaposes to New Jersey and the surrounding counties. We created a civil fine for this back in 2014 yeah. when Jim Kenney was the city councilor, now the mayor, we passed a decriminalization bill. Mm-hmm. And what's critical about that is that back then, Philly was having almost 5,000 arrests a year just for marijuana possession just in the city. Now we give a $25 civil ticket. It's a completely non-criminal offense. So you don't have to get a lawyer. You don't have to go to court. And it's the end of your journey in the criminal justice system as soon as you pay the fine.
0: But, Chris, I do want to ask you a follow up there, because, I mean, people are going from place to place. You know, people blatantly smoking weed at Rittenhouse Square. Mm. I mean, you can sometimes it depends on what time of night you can get a contact. high walk at the Rittenhouse. But it's nothing. I mean, they, they do give you a civil citation. You pay a little citation. You move on. But people don't just stay in Philly. They go other right. places. They go to Montgomery County, they go right. to, to Bucks, they go to Dell, they, they go across the bridge. I mean, how do you educate folks and let them know, like, look, man, you it may be okay, you may just get a ticket in Philly, but you go elsewhere, it could be a lot worse.
2: I, I think that it's going to be easier for us to change the law overall rather than try and educate consumers about the patchwork of ordinances that are coming about. Lancaster City just passed a downgrade ordinance a couple of weeks ago. We passed similar decrim ordinances in York, Erie, State College, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh. So the truth is, I guess, you could go from town to town where it's decriminalized and run the risk of state police in between or the small town police departments. But that's the point. Yeah, We need legislators in Harrisburg to make a uniform policy out of this and really formalize what is a common police practice. You know, we And with the disparities that are coming out still, I mean, I don't want people to think that disparities went away. That's why full legalization is really needed. And when we get to full legalization, there's no reason to even do anything but smile and wave to a police officer when they smell marijuana.
0: Yeah, just like with cigarettes and, and drinks. Steve, you guys have two dispensaries, one in Montgomery County, one in Philadelphia. Is there a difference with the way you talk to folks? It's decriminalized in one place. It's not in another. Do you guys have conversations with folks? and And have you had any feedback from customers or patients that come to you guys that said, "Hey man, you know we got in, you know in issues when we went to other states or traveled or, or did anything
4: We haven't gotten that much feedback um in that respect, but mm-hmm. the education that we do is pretty uniform because um, there are very specific guidelines within the medical marijuana program or Act sixteen that uh, was enacted back in two thousand sixteen. But there, there has to be a lot of education that has to happen with the patient population that we deal with and the public at large. Uh, for example, uh, within this program, cannabis, the medical cannabis that people obtain, even the flower form, cannot be smoked. So you can't roll it up in a joint or you can't roll it up in a blunt or smoking it in a bowl. It's got to be vaporized. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, that's part of the education. So uh, if
0: people misuse it, could you get in trouble? Yes. Yes. Yes.
4: yes. Um, The other. I didn't know that. Right. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you don't, if you actually administer it through smoking, there could be a citation, a fine. Um, I guess it's at the discretion of the law enforcement that finds the person um, in violation. The other issue is you have to understand that, you know, this is a psychoactive product. Driving under influence is is a problematic issue for, for a lot of law enforcement officials. So that type of education has to happen with a lot of the patients that we deal with, is that you can't operate machinery with it because the medicine that you may be partaking in um, will cause uh, a, a dysphoric effect.
6: Mm. Yeah.
4: I, I, I mean, I, I, I hear
2: that police might be uncomfortable with that, but the truth is is that medical marijuana programs are running across the country. There are millions of Americans who hold medical marijuana cards across the United States. Yeah, Asking them all to stop driving is a non-starter. The truth is is that people are allowed medications on the job on the workplace even in jobs that have them operate machinery and you'll get allergy medication or even prescription medication the bottle says don't stop driving or operating machinery the warning says don't drive or operate machinery until you know the effects of this product. Yeah. And I think that we could treat marijuana yeah. much more like we treat cold medication.
0: And you got to you got to move the you move the needle uh, on yeah. this whole matter cuz we're still You know, people's thoughts are here, you know, far ahead of where the laws are in various states. And so, um, Sharon, I want to come back to you because um, licenses are being given out. But a lot of people, specifically African-Americans, who've been most impacted by this whole mass incarceration, a lot of which includes marijuana,
5: um, with the uptick in
0: arrests, they aren't getting the licenses.
5: Exactly, especially here in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, When you look at other states like California that has some very, very um, inclusive equity programs, we have to start looking at those and duplicating those uh, programs that they have in some of those other states because equity is really important in this space Mm -hmm. because right now we don't have it. And I know we're talking about cannabis, which we also call marijuana, weed, for a lot of people. all those Yeah, for a lot of people, those words are trigger (laughs) words, so we like to— Keep it at cannabis because that's what what it is. But in that is also hemp. And that's something that we can grow here in the city, in Philadelphia. There's a lot of people who don't know what they can do and what they can't do. Yeah, so
0: they're making they're crossing state lines, they're crossing county lines, right, into areas where there's an uptick and getting caught up. And once you're in that legal system, it can be devastating, and you might not even be able to qualify then.
5: Exactly and true. And like Chris said, I mean, it's different from state to state. I mean, so there are some states where you cannot qualify for a medical marijuana card, even if you have a condition. Only because you have been arrested. So we really want to look at these programs because wherever people are, they're going to really have to advocate for their rights because right now it's it's not in their hands. And um, and earlier we talked about the vape pen. We talked about go, you know getting a medical marijuana card, going in dispensaries. This is not affordable for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and the locations they're yeah. still rolling out. Some folks have to drive a long way to get access. Uh, We hear that a lot to cannabis. Some people, um, their insurance doesn't cover it and it's not necessarily cheap. So there's a lot of work (laughs) to be done in these spaces and people are starting to become experts because it was new for the Green Rush was new and Mm. those types of things. But, Gary, I want to ask you some advice. What do you tell folks who are out there, you know, living in Philly, living in Pittsburgh and other areas where we marijuana, cannabis is decriminalized? And, you know, some folks have even mar- medical marijuana cards and are traveling and doing all sorts of things. What is your advice to these folks to make sure that they don't get caught up in, in the system?
1: First of all, you need to understand, people with a, someone with a medical marijuana card it is not transferable state to state. Yeah. The card that's issued in Pennsylvania is not good in the state of New Jersey. Delaware's card is not good in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. And, a lot, and we get, I, do get, I do get clients that come in who have a medical marijuana card from New York or Delaware or Pennsylvania and they're in New Jersey with it. And I explain to them, it doesn't matter. It's not transferable. Different standards, different states. Until it's legalized federally, you can't cross the border, so to speak, with it and come from one state to the next. With that car, you can't bring it with you. On planes. No, People well, try, try yes, to fly with it. Another thing I tell, I, I get a lot of clients, young, young guys. And I'll say guys because I see more men than women at 18 to 22, 23 age. Yeah. I, and the big thing is they're like, the cops are harassing me. The cops are always pulling me over. They Always search in my car. I mean, you're pulling you over. Well, I had a light out and they searched my car. I said, Do you smoke in your car? Yeah. First thing I said, Why? Why do you smoke in your car? And they said, Well, that's what we do. DUI. There's a lot of stuff was, you could get from And they say, There's not a lot of times the police find nothing, but they pull the car apart. We tell them, Stop smoking in your cars. A lot of these young guys say, We have nowhere else to go. So we sit in the car. You know, that's I said, that smell never goes away, no matter how faint. I hate to say it. I told people before, sit on the hood and smoke. Don't sit <laughs> it's, in the car. It, it, it's, it's, not as much the,
2: it's not as much the smoke itself that sticks around. And if you want some easy advice that I do give to cannabis consumers and young people who ask me, you know, how do I avoid getting arrested? What smells is the marijuana itself or the marijuana pipe or the leftover roach at the end of a joint. So very simply, the easy solution to get rid of that smell, go buy a $5 sealable coffee mug that you'd use in your car Put all of your marijuana or roaches or bowls inside that and close the top. Just stop driving <laughs> around and smelling like marijuana, and you'll. Chris, be I'm going to get a, a lot better. of downloads on this <laughs> podcast from that advice alone. Wawa <laughs> <But the, voila, laughs> coffee cups just went flying off the shelves. <laughs> you know? But the
1: burnt smell does stay in the corn. It's like a cigarette. Yeah, that smells. stale. Especially stays if, stays if in you in have there. cloth but seats. Chris is right. If you if you have it raw or the used. <laughs> If it's sealed, or just get rid of it, don't Keep the roach in the, in the ashtray. ashtray. Don't put four. Keep putting another one on top of it. Another one, another one. Because some of those ashtrays of are them. filled with them. Man, and you agree about the
2: price. I don't think anybody's going to be throwing it away, <laughs> Gary.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to go back to Steve because you you talked a little bit about some of the uses. Because people want to know how they can they get these medical marijuana cards. There's different disorders and different things. So people can go to their doctors in their states where medical marijuana is legal. Are there specific indications that, that help people?
4: Yeah, it it does vary state by state. In this program that we have here in Pennsylvania, which, in my humble opinion, is really well written. Now, it's going to require amendments and and, and just improvement overall like any emerging market would. Uh, But uh, one thing that was advantageous within this program is that it had really an expansive list of medical qualifying conditions. Um, It started out with 17. Now we're up to 21. Um, everything from neurodegenerative diseases to cancer to PTSD to even autism, which is very unique um, in this program. So that basically entails that many kids will, um, uh, will utilize this medication to help with their um, autism no matter where they are in the spectrum. So I think this, this program is, is really beneficial to at least be able to provide a stepping stone to introduce um, this medicine, this valuable medicine within a he- traditional healthcare model. And, uh, you know, it, it, it brings a, a black and gray market above ground into the hands of healthcare providers like myself. I'm a physical therapist and acupuncturist and, um, and allow us to serve patients who can really benefit from this.
0: In a more natural way versus taking a lot of uh, prescription. Well, this is a prescription, Absolutely. well, but a lot of more chemical based drugs that have severe side effects.
4: Yeah. I mean, my my uh, my first um, Job that I had uh, as a physical therapist was within the skilled long-term care setting, you know, yeah. mainly geriatrics. And what I noticed every time I would pick them up for their therapy sessions is they would have, I don't know, a, a dozen medications or so that they would just swallow at one time. And now you would look at that and say, wait, "Wait, what's going on there? The polypharmacy entailed within these interactions, and who knows what's happening?" Yeah. And and oftentimes they they would disengage and be dissociative, and it would it would just not make. The, uh, the therapy session as optimal as it could be. And with medical cannabis, that could curtail a lot of that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I know that Sharong Dhaka mm-hmm. is having a conference this month, uh, month of October, to talk about this very issue and to educate people on a lot of what Steve is talking about so more people of color get involved. Right.
5: Exactly. The conference is the 2018 Cannabis Opportunities Conference. We talk about a lot of the, the issues just like we've done some a little bit today. But at this conference, we want to talk about the opportunities. So if that opportunity is in wellness, education, as well as economic opportunities, mm. we want to put people in a space where there are professionals and experts who can actually share their information with them. There are still a lot of people who don't have any clue what this looks like. So it's great that we're having this conversation even today today because we need to let more people know about it. It's new now for a lot of people. I mean, really, cannabis was around hundreds and thousands Keep of it years ago. It real, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't until the 1927 yes. that it actually, you know, we're only talking like a little bit over 81 years.
0: Now people are accepted. And tell people the website if they want to register. Yeah,
5: so they can register at DACO.com. 2018. That's daco2018.com,
0: and it's on October 19th, October
5: the 19th and the 20th here wow. in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And so that's sort of the education because education has to happen in order for us to change the laws. Predictions here. Do y'all think that recreation mm-hmm. is
5: going to happen soon? Adult use is happening very soon.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can see it in Jersey first. Yeah, yeah in before Jersey Pennsylvania. before Pennsylvania. Which will probably mean more arrests because folks will go in Jersey and get it. I
1: agree with Jersey, but it's a matter of when. We've been told for the last eight and a half months. We next month, next month. So it's just the, I think you are working out the details on how they're going to regulate it and. and yeah. then they got go to go to the feds at some
0: point everything. and get it off that list of controlled substances. Well, and
2: that's that's, that's a whole other thing. But you know, I've been doing this for twenty years. Yeah, we've all been saying it's going to be next year for twenty years. So again, that's that's the tough part about this. I yeah. do agree that. Delaware was close this year. There were four votes shy in Delaware. So I think Delaware probably has the best chance next year, along with Maryland, which is heating up pretty quick. But we need My a regional solution. We yeah. really do. We need New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Maryland, all and Pennsylvania together to pretty much have very similar adult use programs coming up at the same time. We need this whole region to work together on marijuana in order for this to work for everybody.
0: Yeah, and because this is Flashpoint, we have to wrap this up. Marijuana is no longer seen as a harmful drug for the most part. Mm. Technically, it's still an illegal substance in most states and federally. What will it take to change minds, the law, and to ensure that those harmed from the criminal backlash get to benefit from this green rush? What
5: people need is education. People need to learn how they can get involved. People need to know how they can transfer their current skills into the cannabis space to make this something that the whole entire community can look at as something that is viable and not stigmatized.
1: We need to do something with legislators, not just legalization. They need to follow with other things too, like the people who have been already been arrested, who have this on the record. They need to have the expungement issues taken care of and solved when they when they legalize. So a lot of people have been hurt. Yeah. We're probably getting work. People don't realize students. You lose all federal financial aid if you are if you have a conviction for a drug charge. And Steve,
0: I'll let you do this, and Chris, I'll give you the final words since you've been in the game 20 yeah, years, okay? Patient.
4: This industry has a lot to offer. Uh, it's so multifaceted. Being on the ground floor of the, in this industry, which I'm very humbled to be in, there are so many disciplines and specialties that can get involved, whether it's not just medical professionals, but, uh, you know, the banking industry, the insurance industry, the, the security industry, it's a fantastic um, avenue to, to build jobs, to build the economy up. And in regards to uh, changing minds, I think uh, I think the best way to do that is go out and vote that the politicians that resonate with this issue and are more forward thinking in regards to uh, changing laws and providing those avenues and allow um, medical cannabis and cannabis in general. to 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 be on the forefront. Chris, final
2: Um, word. I think the stigma is is largely gone. You know, even polling here in Pennsylvania shows 60 percent of voters support legalization. I mean, most of our our presidents, President Obama included, you know, admitted to being a cannabis consumer at some point in his life. I think what we need is what Sharon's talking about. Even where we've legalized it in other places, the underground market hasn't gone away. How do we actually move the underground market into a legitimate world? How do we get who are the marijuana dealers of today to be legitimate micro permit holders tomorrow? And how do we get people to jump out of the underground market as consumers and into the legitimate world? And that comes to fair pricing. So we've got big decisions to make about how to regulate all this, because the bigger side of it is who's going to make money on it. And, and that's where Sharon's at, too. So legalization has to make money for everybody in order for it not to be split between underground and... And above ground.
0: I just want to say to Chris Goldstein, to Larry Lomano, to Steve O, and to Sharon Perry Thomas, thank you for coming on Flashpoint and to, and talking about this issue in the news.
3: It's been a pleasure.
0: Next up, he's a top civil lawyer for the city of Philadelphia, and he's charting his own course.
3: No one is above the law.
0: The new city solicitor's progressive legal strategy. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is a lawsuit. Well, one man is a new leader of the City Solicitor's Office. Born, raised, and educated in Philadelphia, Marcel Pratt has been the boss man for a $15 million operation that includes 300 lawyers and legal professionals since April the Penn & Temple Law Grad's office represents the city administration in civil cases, fighting for Philadelphia's sanctuary status, and much more. Marcel, welcome to Flashpoint.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: First of all, congratulations on your new role with the city. Thank you. Yeah, and I was just saying how, go back a few years. You yeah, were- we
3: yeah we go way back. You knew me when I first broke into the legal practice, so yeah, um, yeah, have come full circle.
0: Definitely. And so for those uh, folks who don't know what the city solicitor's office does, give us a a basic understanding.
3: Sure. So the city solicitor is the lawyer for the entire city government structure. Mm -hmm. My office operates as essentially the law firm for the mayor, his entire administration, city council, uh, the sheriff's office, the controller, uh, even the district attorney's office in civil cases. And we represent the city, officials, and employees, and all forms of civil litigation. So we have about 300 lawyers mm-hmm. across about 15 units. And I should say it's not just litigation. Uh, we also represent the city in transactions. But people know us most for the types of litigation that we do because those tend to make the news yeah. uh, uh, more often. But, you know, we represent the city in uh, property damage claims, personal injury claims, uh, obviously civil rights cases, enforcement of the Philadelphia code labor and employment cases right so the city has about 25,000 employees and we represent the city when claims are made against the city uh, for employment reasons and then on the transactional side we represent the city in contract negotiations real estate acquisitions regulatory issues environmental issues we actually represent the Philadelphia International Airport which a lot of folks don't know what? so it's a it's a huge operation yeah 300 attorneys 300 214. Uh, lawyers right now and about 100, 100 staff. So it's a big operation. Y'all busy. All the time. <laughs> all the time.
0: Because every time people always want to sue, and, and, yeah. and you're doing you're doing multiple things at the same time. Right. And so right. you're like the managing partner.
3: Yes. it's a good way of putting it. Managing all yeah. these people.
0: Do you go to court at all at this
3: point? I, I do. Every now and again. I mean, it's mm-hmm. different from solicitor to solicitor, but I do go to court every now and again. Um, some of it is stuff that has a short lifespan. The last time I was in court was actually for our sanctuary cities trial. Yes, against the federal government. So uh, I was in court for that. we did a we did a trial and uh, the police commissioner testified. Um, and so I did his examination. But yeah, I've gone to court on, on some other things as well, but you know, most of my time is dedicated to you know, managing the office and also um, doing legal strategy for some of our larger cases that I have other attorneys litigating and also overseeing some of our large, large transactions, legislation as well. It runs the gamut. Keeps it pretty exciting. Yeah. You're never bored. I'm never, never. Never bored.
0: And so you guys have been in the, in the headlines quietly. Mm-hmm. You know, people may not know, but anytime there's a major lawsuit, a decision come out, and it's a civil related situation yeah. for the city, you guys are involved. And That's you right. mentioned the sanctuary cities. That was a huge deal.
3: That was. That was a big deal. When for us, the policies at issue in that case really speak to who we are as a city. I mean the mm-hmm. whole idea behind – and we like to say welcoming city policies because that's what we really are. We want to make people feel welcome. But the whole idea behind those policies is that we want people in immigrant communities to feel welcome here. Yeah. That the city doesn't care you know, what papers you have in your pocket or where you might be from. You know, we want you to feel welcome. We want you to report crimes, for example, to police, to the DA. Um, And we also want you to use city services that are available as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really the whole point behind those policies is to encourage that type of interaction with local government. And, you know, those policies were attacked by the federal government. The way they tried to do it in that case was they tried to withhold critical criminal justice funding Mm -hmm. from the city in order to get us to change our policies. It it felt good to take that to court. It felt good to get that win.
6: Yeah. Uh, And
3: also to just have reassurance that no one is above the law, not even... President of the United States. And so it felt good to have that reaffirmed by the federal judiciary. Yeah. And, and that case is still on appeal, too.
0: Yeah. So. And Mayor Jim Kenney was very proud of that win. Yeah. Uh, and, and the city was proud of that win because right. that's a big part of the city philosophy. Your office has had a lot of other wins. So mm-hmm. the tax...
3: Yeah, yeah. Soda tax was a big one. That was a really important initiative for the city. Obviously, the money is going to a great cause. It's going to, to, to pre-K. But that was a hard case. I mean, we were up against the soda industry and they hired some mm-hmm. high-powered lawyers and we fought hard and, you know, we're just happy that it was over. I mean, the litigation lasted for close to two years. And so, you know, even though we won in the trial court, we won – in the intermediate appellate court and ultimately in the Supreme Court, but at every step of the way, there's always some risk, right? So it was never never a slam dunk. But it's it's good to finally be past that chapter and to have that have that win.
0: Yeah. And so are there other big issues that you guys are focused on? And I almost feel like you have mm-hmm. to be kind of a progressive person yeah. to aggressively fight these court battles on behalf of yeah. a city like Philadelphia.
3: We're focused on a number of things right now. I mean a lot of, some of it's confidential, can't can't mm-hmm. talk about it on air. But um I can tell you that one of my big initiatives is to bring more cases on behalf of the city mm-hmm. against entities that might be causing harm to the city. city gets sued a lot. I think we're the most sued entity uh, in philadelphia <laughs> Wow uh, yeah. so we, we do want to use our legal power to uh, try and bring more money into the into the city and, and to correct some behavior that might be harming the city so we are we are thinking of ways to bring more affirmative litigation i mean and one example of that is the case that we brought against the opioid manufacturers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for their role in causing the opioid crisis. And so we're we're always brainstorming ways to bring uh, more affirmative litigation. It's a little bit different given the state of the law because we don't have the same power as the attorney general, for example, to bring cases on behalf of the consumer or on behalf of of, of residents. But what we do is we try to look for ways that we can articulate an injury to the city Mm -hmm. and at the same time use that as a way to bring a lawsuit or some sort of claim that might also benefit the residents of the city.
0: Yeah, and do you see the the city in this way as you know the chief civil uh, law officer mm-hmm. here? Basically, do you see the city as taking the leadership um, na- nationally in a mm-hmm. lot of ways? Because with sanctuary cities, the city is literally a leader in this on this issue.
3: Yeah, we're definitely a leader on that issue, and a lot of other cities have reached out to us mm-hmm. in terms of how to deal with litigation or possible litigation. They look at us for strategy. Uh, and I think our case, we, we've provided somewhat of a roadmap for other cities to follow. And even looking at some of the cases that that followed us, I mean, we can we can see where, you know, not just how our judicial rulings in our case influence the other cases, but also just our strategy. We can see it reflected in some of the steps that the other cities are taking.
0: Yeah. And I got to switch gears a little bit to the other big issue, which is settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, the city has had a number of high profile settlements. And specifically because I cover mass incarceration, right. it's been related to wrongful uh, convictions, stuff that happened way before you were right. you were in right. your role. What's the philosophy behind dealing with these kind of cases, especially in wrongful conviction where there's no statute statewide that provides any type of compensation?
3: Even though there is no statute statewide, there is always the option to file a federal lawsuit, which is what you've seen happen. But our philosophy is that we take a, a very close look at these cases. I mean, these are tragic Tragic cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that if someone is incarcerated for something that they didn't do, and then they're exonerated, um, for example, by being retried uh, before a jury, clearly that's that's a tragedy, and it's something that the city doesn't want to see happen. Something I personally don't want to see happen. From a, a litigation standpoint, I think you know every case is evaluated on a case by case basis, and you know what we always do when we get those cases, and really all cases, is that we you know, look at it through a number of different factors. So first factor is what's in the best legal interest of the city, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Is this a case where we kind of want to have the law defined in a certain way or we want to test a certain legal theory because that'll inform our strategy for better or for worse in other cases. Second consideration is always money. People always think the city has infinite, infinite money. Um, I don't have that money at my disposal. So what a lot of folks don't know is that, well, I only actually have about $50 million to settle Mm-hmm. All claims that are filed against the city per year. And so that includes every personal injury case, uh, every civil rights case, every employment case, things that we don't anticipate, you know, water main breaks, for example. And so we have to do all that with just fifty million dollars. So again, not a lot of money and actually hey, look, small dude,
0: we out. We, we out
3: yeah, actually it's, it's small compared to a lot of other yeah. a lot of other cities. So yeah. we look at we look at money as well. And then also, and this is probably the most important factor is simply What's fair? What's what's the right thing to do in this case? And like I said, that implies that applies across the board in all types of cases. And so, you know, you really do have to just think about what's fair, what's the right thing to do, because you are representing the city. Right. And and you and you don't want to you know, do something that the city as a government or even the residents of the city don't want to see you do. That's always a consideration. Taxpayer dollars. Taxpayer dollars. Right. Yeah. Those are the considerations that uh, we always bring to the table. But like I said, every case is different. Case by case basis.
0: Even with because I know Anthony Wright, he got nearly mm-hmm. ten million. You, Eugene Gilliard, um, you know these are folks that people saw their stories and they right. they they felt for these folks. And, and so I think the city people weren't outraged by these by these settlements. You didn't get or do people speak out and say, "Look, that's too much," mm-hmm. or "Why did we settle? We should have." Do you ever get reaction from from people?
3: No, I don't think we get outrage or any negative reactions. I think mm-hmm. people know about the cases because they're. Mm-hmm. Uh, reported on publicly. So they understand, you know, the risks that the city faces in those types of cases. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think people have the same sense that we do, which is let's look at what's the what's the right thing to do here. What's, yeah. what's what's the fair result here? And, you know, a lot of it happens behind the scenes with lawyers and judges being involved. And, you know, a lot of times with these settlements, we actually have judges involved that are kind of mediating the cases uh, or or encouraging the parties to settle. So a lot of times the numbers yeah. that you see are actually encouraged by Uh, Some judges that might that might be involved through the settlement process. So every case differs. But, you know, yeah, we don't get we don't get much negative reaction, at least not yet. Yeah, Um, because
0: I know the David Jones case, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, Ryan Paul, no, who's now facing criminal charges that was recently settled. And people, you know, people were outraged by this case. Mm -hmm. And then they see the city makes a settlement. And like you said, I mean, the city wants to do you say the city but the people who, who run the city, they right. want the right thing to happen.
3: Exactly. Every, yeah, the folks, all the officials and local government, they want to see the right thing happen. And, you know, it's also important to understand that we always represent the city, even though sometimes we represent individual employees. For example, our duty is always to the city. Mm-hmm. And so if there's ever a conflict between the city and um, an employee because that employee didn't follow policy or possibly broke the law, then my office actually doesn't represent that employee. We might get outside counsel or we might decline to represent that person uh, altogether. And so some of the settlements that you see, they're actually probably on behalf of the city and not on behalf of um, the individual. individual. And I won't get into specifics about that, but, you know, that's something also to keep in mind, because even though an individual can have their own sort of liability, the city has exposure as well, especially in in some of the civil rights cases. It's a completely separate legal theory than the one you would make against an individual. And so we're always cognizant of that, that Mm -hmm. even where we think, um, you know, something went wrong on an individual basis, we have to look at, you know, what the risks are to the city. Um, And like I said, also, what's what's the fair thing? What's the right thing to do in this particular case?
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, you're fairly young. He's a millennial,
3: everybody. <laughs> He's
0: a millennial, born and raised in West Philly. Right. I think you probably would inspire a lot of young people right now. So where where exactly did you grow up? And, and I also want to talk about, because we and you both worked multiple jobs in college. Yeah. Uh, to go to law school. So talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, so I was uh, born in North Philly, lived there in my early childhood, and then moved to West Philly. Whole family's in Philly. I have one brother who lives in Indianapolis, but whole family's pretty much here in Philly. So that feels good to have their support. Every day I hear from somebody, you know, encouraging me. So it's it's good to have that family base here in Philly. And that's Mm -hmm. the reason why I chose to to stay in Philly is because my family's here. You know, went to Penn undergrad. At certain points worked three jobs. I was uh, an information technology assistant in my dorm. I was a library assistant. um, And then I also... uh, did some tutoring at uh, at West Philly High. So there was a point where I did have three jobs just because, you know, you kind of need the, the money in college. right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't if you don't have it like that. You need to bring the extra money in somehow. Um, and so went to law school at Temple and I graduated right around the time that the economy tanked. I actually had an offer to join Ballard Spar, large corporate law firm here in the city. And when the economy tanked, a lot of firms had to make difficult decisions, right? So some firms across the country were rescinding offers they had made to law students. Mm -hmm. I mean, some firms actually shut down. We had a firm here in Philly that actually closed during that time period. Wolf, right? Wolf Wolf Lock, yeah. Yeah. You had, um, you know, folks just not really knowing what was going to happen. I'll never forget, I was uh, in my third year of law school, checked my email one day, and there was an email from uh, Ballard who had given me an offer saying, or from someone I knew there saying, let me know if you need help finding something. So I was scared. I was like, what, what just Part happened? Be- yeah, did yeah. I just lose my job? But they were actually announcing a program where they were going to defer our start dates for a year and pay us stipends to work in public interest. So you could pretty much do anything that was not for profit. Someone from my class taught high school uh, social studies for a year. Some folks went to the public defender's office. I actually went to the law department, the office that I'm in now, and spent the year there. Great experience, was in court all the time a lot of responsibility. After that, went back to Ballard Bar, spent a number of years there, did a lot of complex commercial litigation, Mm -hmm. a lot of antitrust work, competition law, plaintiffs and defense side, did some intellectual property work. And I want to say in 2016, when the mayor's administration changed, Sozie Tulante, my predecessor, reached out Mm -hmm. and asked me to come head up the litigation group at the law department. So that's managing about a third of the office had to think long and hard about it because you leave the private sector and to you go get into good
0: money in the private
3: sector yeah right yeah you see. know what it's like yeah, yeah. you were at a big firm yeah uh before too so mm-hmm. you know it was it was a uh, had to think about it a little bit but everyone i talked to said look you got to do it it's a great opportunity it's a very progressive administration they're going to do great things um and i believed in everything that the mayor and Sosie wanted to accomplish so i said yes and then worked on some of the big cases that we already talked about you know, soda tax. Killing a game. Yeah. Is the, winning. <laughs> just winning. You know, some of the other big yeah. cases that we filed, you know, we sued Wells Fargo for discriminatory lending. Mm-hmm. And I already mentioned the opioid cases. And then when Sozie decided to leave, that's when the mayor asked me to, to take over. Um, and
0: what was your reaction?
3: I said yes. Right. It's not something you can say no to yeah, or, yeah, or let yeah. me think about it. Um, but I did leave his office thinking, what did I just say yes to? But it was it was the right decision. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. One of the best legal jobs you could have, period. You
0: and know? your future looks really bright. I mean, to to start this so young and to and to be able to be in an administration like this. I've never seen so many lawyers so excited mm-hmm. to work for like the the DA's office yeah. and and the city just I've never like all my they're like, "Oh, I'm quitting this job and I'm gonna run over here and work here because it's it's work where you're actually like taking leadership. In areas right. that really matter to a lot of people.
3: Yeah, we, we have a very progressive local government in a lot of different ways. And it has gotten people more excited about the law mm-hmm. um, because lawyers play a critical role in change. And we have seen more interest in people wanting to come to our office and just interest in general and some of the things that we're working on. And historically, we haven't really seen that because, again, people yeah. think city and the law department and they think, you know, mm-hmm. lawsuits. Yeah. Right. You know, us getting sued and they don't think of um, us helping the government become a change agent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so what motivates you? Like what makes you get up in the morning, put on the suit and be to work on time?
3: I think um, it's it's this idea that I'm representing my city. You know, this is where I was born and raised, never lived anywhere else. Um, I don't plan on living anywhere else at the moment. But, um, you know, it's that sense of pride, you know, waking up and, and just saying I'm the lawyer for Philadelphia. And um, every day I start my job with um, the thought of how can I do what's in the city's best interest and how can I represent the city to the best of my ability? And I find motivation in that. And, and like I said, it's just very prideful to have that kind of a position, yeah. To represent your hometown, to represent um, the folks who work for your hometown um, and to, to just try and make the city a better place to live.
0: Yeah. And so in a few years or whatever, you know, how would you rate it and say when you look back and say Mm -hmm. this was a successful I was successful. I did what I came to do. What would have to happen for you to say that?
3: I would want to look back and see the role of the law department having changed a little bit in that, you know, again, we're not just the ones defending lawsuits. We're actually helping Local government shape policy in in a more meaningful way. I mean, I think we already do to some extent, but I would want to look back in a few years and say, you know, because of the successes that we've had during this administration and some of the initiatives that we already talked about, that we now play a greater role in helping change government. and and change things for the betterment of the residents.
0: Well, wonderful. So, Marcel Pratt, born, bred, educated in Philadelphia. Yes. Now, City Solicitor, congratulations to you. Thank you. And I wish you luck, and I hope that vision becomes reality. I
3: appreciate that. Thank you. All
0: right. Next up, an autoimmune disorder more likely to attack women. When you can't get up in the morning and you can't move your hands, that affects your life. The symptoms and signs, an event designed to raise awareness. We'll be right back.
7: But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets. I'm Flashpoint Associate Producer Brianna Bonds. Let's take it to the Tweets. We're getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. We're going to break it down quick this week. We polled you. Should marijuana usage be treated the same as alcohol consumption in the eyes of the law? The options were, yes, it is the same. No, it's a drug. Only for medical use? and not sure 47 of you chimed in the top answer with 72 percent of the vote is yes it is the same no it's a drug only got 15 percent of the vote and a mere 6 percent of the vote went to only for medical use we got comments on this post saying that marijuana is probably less dangerous than alcohol. Times are changing, and the consensus of this poll is the law should change too. All right, that's all for Flashpoint on the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at FlashpointShow. Look for the hashtag FlashpointPoll. Like always, catch you next time. This
0: is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. 73% of 18 to 34-year-old Americans are uneducated about the systemic autoimmune disease known as lupus. This number can be startling because about 1.5 million Americans suffer from a form of the disease. The Lupus Foundation of America's Philadelphia Tri-State Chapter is in the race to increase awareness and help individuals affected by the illness. Is making moves in preparation of the annual run and walk to end lupus now. Here to tell us more about their ongoing effort is Chair of the Board of Directors, Cherie Barone. Cherie, welcome to Flashpoint.
6: Thank you so much, Cherie. Good to meet you.
0: Yeah, so for those individuals who have never heard about the Lupus Foundation of America, tell me what you guys do.
6: Well, we are here to raise awareness of lupus. We are also raising money for research in the tri-state area. We provide services to over 45,000 people living in the tri-state area that are affected by lupus. That is a lot of folks. So tell me, what is lupus? Because a lot of people, they, they know someone who may have it. You don't know, and everybody has it in a different way. That's right, and there's so much um, misconception about lupus. A mm-hmm. lot of people say it's like this or it's like that. No, actually, lupus is an autoimmune disease that can affect any part of your any part of your body, uh, major organs. Lupus can be mild, moderate, or severe. It is life threatening, quite honestly, because basically, what it is is the immune system begins to attack itself. Mm. Your immune system is designed to protect your body. So when you have a cold or a virus, your immune system kicks in to destroy and get rid of that virus. And those people who are living with lupus, the immune system attacks itself because it can't tell the difference between the good things and the bad things. Mm-hmm. So the immune system is in overdrive, and that's what can make it life-threatening. Because I know that lupus could affect your skin. It could affect your kidneys. It could affect a lot of things. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. Any major organ. And it can be mild. So there are some people that just may have joint pain, which for some people is major because when you can't get up in the morning and you can't move your hands or you can't get out of the bed, that affects your life and that affects your daily functions.
0: Yeah. And so October is a huge month for
6: you all. Yes, it is. October is when we have our largest fundraising event. It is the Lupus Loop Mm -hmm. and it's being held on 28th of October at Fairmount Park. It is the 27th annual lupus loop, so we've been around for 27 years with this walk now.
0: This is a big deal to let people know because a lot of people stumble upon it and they get misdiagnosed quite often.
6: Oh my goodness, that is so true. It usually takes six years to get an accurate diagnosis because lupus mimics so many other diseases. So many of us have been misdiagnosed in the process of trying to get to an accurate diagnosis of lupus. Do you have a personal connection to this? Yes, I was diagnosed with lupus in 1994.
0: Wow. And did it take some time for you to get diagnosed?
6: Actually, six years. Wow. It took me six years to get diagnosed after many different doctors and many incorrect diagnoses. The doctors that I went to did not take me seriously. I had a lot of doctors tell me that it was all in my head. I had two young children at the time, and they said, you know, you're a young mother, you're working full-time, you're doing a lot. Oh, just go home and take a nap or go on vacation, you'll be okay. Well, my symptoms never went away. So I finally found a rheumatologist that said, okay, I will stay with you. We will figure this out. Because by that time, I was a basket case. I was just in pain. I was swollen. I wasn't sleeping. Um, It was just awful. So when he finally did the blood work, because unfortunately, there's not just one test that can tell you whether or not you have lupus. You have to have a series of tests to get a baseline. Then you have to go back and get another series of tests to basically compare the first set of tests with the second set of tests. And when the test results came back, the doctor said, I have good news and I have bad news. It's lupus. And back in 1994, someone saying that, for me, I thought it was a death sentence. We didn't know a lot about lupus. So for him to say that was immediate. How long do I have? And he said, no, 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 it's not that bad, but it's bad because there is no cure. So unfortunately, there's no known cause for lupus, and there's no known cure.
0: Yeah, but you've been able to build a life and yes. do well. And so just everybody's sort of being together. That's correct. And, and being at the Lupus Loop Run and Walk, I mean, it's sort of like it's a community.
6: It is a community, and it is a very large community. And we have very loyal supporters, and we are trying this year— to get 4,000 people out. So we are inviting everyone to come out and support us for the Lupus Loop.
7: And so
0: give
6: me all the details. You
0: know, come on
6: out, support it. Yes, please. The date is Sunday, October the 28th. We will be in Fairmount Park Memorial Hall Loop. Check-in is at 7 a.m. The race begins at 8.30. They can go on our website, lupusloop.org, to register. You can go at lupusloop.org to just donate if they'd like to donate. It is the 27th annual Lupus Loop 5K Run 2.5-mile walk. They can wear costumes. They can bring their families because it is also the Sunday, I believe, right before Halloween. Just a big celebration, a big time for families, friends, supporters, advocates, everyone. So we invite everyone to come support us.
0: I think this is sort of like your story says don't give up. That's if you, right. It is not all in your head. If you're having issues swelling, you know, pain, joint pain, all these things, go see a doctor. And if they don't have, they can't help you, go see another doctor. That's right. And call the lupus office.
6: Yeah. Call the lupus office. Absolutely.
0: There are folks who can help you. So thank you so much to Cherie Peron. She is the chair of the board of directors for the Lupus Foundation of America's Philadelphia Tri-State Chapter. Enjoy the lupus loop. I hope you guys reach your goal. 4,000 people, folks.
6: Yes, thank you. All right.
0: That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast for exclusive content using the radio.com app, Apple podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Bob Marley once said, emancipate yourselves for mental slavery none but ourselves can free our minds. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.